I trust that we'll wrap this chapter up. For those of you who are guests, we try to go through one book of the Bible at a time in our morning services and evening services. And we're going through the book of Romans together. And Lord willing, we'll look at verses 30 to 33 of Romans chapter 15. If you need a Bible to follow along with, you can just lift up your hand and our ushers will uh, be able to supply you uh, with one. Keep your hand up high if you need one. Um, and we'll continue on together this morning. Thank you again for ministering to my heart and to each other's hearts in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs today. You're a tremendous source of conviction and encouragement to me uh, and to each other. And it certainly prepares our heart to hear the word of God more uh, appropriately. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, let's read these verses together, and then we'll preach through them, God willing, this, this morning. Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find rest. Your translation may say refreshing rest or something like that in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I want you to go back with me to verse 30. Uh, the last line of that verse says, to strive together with me in your prayers. Underline the phrase, strive together with me, and then the word prayers here. That really is the main focus of this text, or the main, uh, should I say, uh, emphasis, the main activity, if you will, but striving together in prayer is done for a purpose here that we'll describe as we go throughout uh, the rest of the service this morning. This text is talking about where we find real success or real help in evangelistic efforts. Uh, no gospel outreach from the church, whether individual, corporate, whether in Judea and Samaria or across the seas is ever truly effective unless the church prays. As a matter of fact, here at Grace Church of Mentor, we've only found true spiritual success in evangelism when it's been underpinned by fervent prayer of God's people. Years ago, we started a men's prayer breakfast on Saturdays. I can tell you that was probably the time in our church's history where we saw God begin to move. There are multiple other opportunities to pray together and individual that we've added over the years. And I can tell you that prayer underpins any gospel uh, effort that's successful. And that's the way God's always intended it to be. Even the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, pray that the Lord would send forth laborers into his field. The Lord prayed that way in John 17, we'll look at a little bit later. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, encouraged the Colossian people as he encouraged the Roman believers here that prayer is essential for any type of gospel outreach. 
I was encouraged a long time ago by a seminary professor. He said, you know, you ought to be praying more in amount of time as compared to the amount of time you talk to other people about Jesus Christ. If we're witnessing more than we're praying, we're probably not going to be as spiritually successful as the Lord would want us to be. But when our private prayers for lost souls outnumber the amount of opportunities we take with lost souls to give the gospel, that's where we'll truly find spiritual success in evangelism. So Paul here is emphasizing prayer. We've seen the Lord work here at Grace Church of Mentor not only individually in praying for each other and for our families and uh, our loved ones and our co-workers, but do you remember those of you that have been around here long enough? We used to have a youth outreach every year for 13 years straight called The War, and we would spend hours and hours and hours before that event and during that event praying. There would be different obstacles that would come during the week that we had that together youth outreach to our whole community uh, and to the teenagers in it. There would be inclement weather. Uh, there would be... Um, Maybe here and there a broken wrist or a broken collarbone in the games that we had. Um, things happen when you're playing camp games with kids. The pizza would allow, arrive late. Um, anything and everything that could happen probably did happen. But in the end of the day, there were still young people that came to know the Lord as their Savior. As a matter of fact, some of those young people are in our auditorium this morning with spouses and children that were reached during those years. We've planted churches together. We've sent out people from this church to plant churches. The goal was to plant a church to get the gospel to that area more effectively than we were able to do so as a local church. Inevitably, there were obstacles that we had to overcome in the planting of each and every church that God led us to begin. But in the end of the day, those churches were planted and the gospel continues to go out in those areas. We've sent or helped send many people overseas to the foreign mission field and their deputation processes. There's always obstacles, maybe to their health, to their trans transportation, maybe a longer period of time raising funds and deputation to get overseas to take the gospel to a foreign land. But in the end of the day, God takes them there and the obstacles, which we could have never anticipated their kind, they're always normal, and we're always able to eventually see the gospel go forward. But whether individual, whether local, whether church planting, or whether foreign, every event that's ever been, or every opportunity that we've ever able to participate in as a family has only been successful because you have prayed. You have prayed. Paul's going to walk us through, in this short text, the necessity of prayer that must underpin successful gospel outreach. And I hope your hearts are encouraged to see the very practical reasons why God would have us pray as we work together in gospel efforts. I've already mentioned Matthew 9, 38, where Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest he says in Luke chapter 10 and verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. 
right next to these verses in Romans 15, you should write down Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, which is another uh, section of Scripture the Apostle Paul wrote on evangelistic prayer, as well as Colossians 4, 2 through 6. All of these passages, we see the source of the message, the carrier of the message, the obstacles to the message, and the process of the message, but none of them are successful unless believers pray that the message has free course and rapid advance. I want us to remember three things in relationship to the context before we dive into verses 30 to 33 that are important. Remember, God is ordered... God has an order for his interdependent gospel advancement for each of us. On your own time, go back and listen to the previous week's message or on your own study time. I want you to again remember the geography that Paul describes or lays out for us in chapter 15. It's very, very clear in an interdependent way that God has designed individuals Churches and then interdependent churches even to work together for the spread of the gospel in a Jerusalem in the regions beyond their local church and throughout the whole world God has an order for interdependent gospel advancement for each of us and it starts right here in our own area Secondly the gospel's advancement is most efficiently done through gospel unified maturing, disciple-making believers at the local church level. Go back to chapter 12 in the beginning of the practical portion of the book of Romans. We see a unified, active, maturing group of people being shepherded and shepherding each other. These people, along with prayer, find great success in gospel advancement. And gospel advancement, thirdly, is most capably accomplished by those who live in a holy love. Saints who know and live the objective written will of God, and they do this together, and they pray together for gospel advancement, they realize the fruit of their holy lives and their prayer endeavors. So, remembering those three things by way of immediate context in the practical section of the book of Romans, I want to outline these several verses with these three points. So, if you take notes, what I'd like to discuss first of all with you is a discerned intention in verse number 30. A discerned intention. As we pray together, what's the intent? It takes discernment. The first part of verse 31, prayer is offered for a necessary protection, a discerned intention, and then a necessary protection. And the second part of verse 31 to verse 33, we'll realize an organic cooperation, an organic cooperation. So what do we know about this discerned intention of prayer for evangelistic efforts in verse 30? He says here, now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He says here, now I urge you, brethren. We're going to, as efficiently as we can, highlight the first several phrases of this verse 
and then conclude why we've given it the title of discerned intention. Now I urge you, brethren, we're going to notice right off as we start this morning in our outline, the encouragement to unity of purpose. Unity of purpose. The word urge here is not necessarily a typical word for urge in the New Testament, which is more of a, um, we'll get to that a little bit later, which is more of an intense word. But this is, this is really a word of encouragement. Paul is saying here, I call you alongside of me. It's the idea of, you know, coming alongside a brother or sister in Christ for encouragement and giving them a side hug and say, hey, look, I encourage you to go and to do this with me, okay? There's unity of purpose here. I'm calling you alongside of me, brethren. No soul left behind in Rome. He doesn't say, now I urge you maturity matters or I urge you youth group or I urge you young marrieds. He says, I urge all of you brethren. I'm calling all of you alongside in an encouraging way to do something. And then he qualifies it even further. And I find this fascinating for me. I trust it's fascinating according to the text. But he says here, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Why not say, I urge you, brethren, by the Lord, or I urge you, brethren, by Jesus, or I urge you, brethren, by Christ? Why the Lord Jesus Christ? I want us to go back and remember what he's dealt with in chapter 14 through chapter 15 and verse 7. He's talking to two kinds of people the strong and the weak. The weak were formerly religious Jews, still struggling with some of the formality of their religious past. And the strong are recently saved Gentiles who have utmost confidence of their position in Jesus Christ. He uses three names for our Savior to make sure that what he just calls them to do as brethren is solidified. He's giving respect to the Old Testament Jew by calling him Lord. The word for Lord here would have been understood in the Old Testament Jewish mind as Yahweh in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's kurios. Every time the word Yahweh is translated in the New Testament, in Greek, it goes from Yahweh to kurios. So he would have been appealing here to the weak first. I urge all of you brethren, even the weak, Jesus, Savior, his common human name, which would have been familiar to both the strong and the weak of the church at this time. But then he says, especially to the Gentile. And then he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the anointed Messiah, the coming one, the, the coming ruler of the earth. So for the Old Testament mindset in Christ, for the New Testament mindset in Christ, and then for their collective mindset in Christ, who's coming to rule and to reign, I urge you, brethren... And he says here another qualifying statement, by the love of the Spirit. The love of the Spirit 
Uh, it literally means the love of the Spirit that engenders among us. In other words, if you cross-reference here Galatians 5 and the list of the fruit of the Spirit there, love, joy, peace, it's just really the love that the Spirit of God engenders among us as a maturing, unified people. I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ, in the love that the Spirit of God continues to cultivate among us, what does he say next? Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. And this is where it gets a little bit more intense. The loving call's been given, the unifying reasons reestablished, and then he says, literally, agonize with me. Agonize with me. Unity in Scripture, my friends, really comes from the top down, so to speak. In the Godhead, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who are one. But there's an infrastructure of authority there, isn't there? In your homes, there's an infrastructure of authority. In your businesses, there's an infrastructure of authority. In the local church, there's an infrastructure of authority. The whole world, the whole, the whole created universe functions on many axioms, and that's one of them, the authority submission principle. These folks are unified brethren. They're, they're called to do something together, and what they're called to do together is to agonize together in prayer for some purposes here that are very clear. But my friends, it's assumed here that they're unified. And they're unified from the top down, just like any other institution or organization on earth that God's given or man's built. We're only as successful as we are together. And he's saying we've got to be together in prayer from the top down all the brethren, regardless of your religious or Gentile backgrounds, we've got to be together agonizing in prayer. The word prayer here is the most common word in the New Testament for prayer. It's the most general term, right? We've got to be together praying. Psalm 133, if you want to write in the margin of your Bible here, is a wonderful text that talks about how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. And then it gives two metaphors of what unity looks like from the top down. The anointing of a high priest and Mount Hermon. Right? In the anointing of a high priest, they would pour the oil in the Old Testament upon his head and that oil would saturate down past his beard to his garment, even to the hem of his garment. And it would be such a soaking, the oil would drip off the hem of his garment. If you know anything about the geography of the Middle East, Mount Hermon, it's snow-capped mountains. When snow melts, uh, the mountainsides are saturated and the valleys below for months. It's a complete saturation. Verse 3 of Psalm 133 says it's in a place like that where brethren dwell together like that in unity from the top down. There the Lord commands a blessing, even life forevermore. And that's what Paul's saying here. I call every one of you together. You're unified from the top down. We're going to agonize in our prayers to God for who? For Paul. 
Why does he say for me? Well, go back to what we said last week and the geography of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem and the regions beyond. The gospel's gone forth. And they've prayed for that success in gospel dissemination. And they've realized, Paul's realized that success. He says, we're going to continue now because from you, I am going to go to Spain. And we're going to reach the rest of the known world, God willing, in my lifetime. And it's going to absolutely require continued agonizing together in prayer as a unified people. I have been in lots of churches throughout the country and churches that are, haven't seen people coming to know Jesus in a long time and almost in every place where they haven't been seeing people come to know Jesus, there's some type of rift or division in the church. And most often, without exaggeration, most often the, the rift is among the leadership. When the leadership can't agree theologically, philosophically, and practically from the word of God, how the church is supposed to function, I assure you the rest of the church is not going to agree. But yet they still have week-long evangelistic meetings. They pay thousands of dollars for guest speakers to come in and reach out to youth and to children. They're still going hundreds of hours of time door-to-door handing out the gospel. They're in public places like fairs. Right? And malls handing out the gospel. Still no fruit, still no fruit, still no fruit, still no fruit. And they're, they're, they're stretched, they're worn out, they're tired. And they call you and they say, why? And you spend a little bit of time with them. And within a couple hours, you realize why. They're divided from the top down. And what Paul is saying here is the opposite of that. We've seen success. We've had success because, brethren, from the top down, we've been agonizing in prayer. Now continue to join me and we'll know that unified, maturing saints who pray together realize success in gospel advancement. This is not difficult, my friends. It's not difficult. You've heard me use the illustration of The Lord only loves to send new babies to spiritual nurseries. He knows they're able to take care of them. God is not interested in sending new babies to be cared for in churches where the leadership and the people are divided. We all discuss commonly in our culture, right? How much it's hard for us to watch babies born into environments of broken homes and homes that are falling apart from the top down. That child may never see Right? How God intended the home to function. Regardless of the analogy you want to use, my friends, the Lord is not interested in sending his people to a dis, new babies to a disunified uh, group of people who are not praying together. I helped one church in Ohio and talked to the pastor before he left. And he had not met with his leaders for prayer in over 25 years because he had a rift with some of the leaders on his board. So therefore, his people weren't praying together. From the top down, there's no striving together for the cause of the gospel and prayer if people aren't unified. 
Paul writes to a Roman church that is unified. He's asking them to continue to strive together in prayer. He's assuming that new birth will be cared for well in Rome and that when he comes to them and he's refreshed by them and sent out from them to Spain, that the Lord will effectually use those prayers unto gospel advancement because they're unified. They're unified and they're maturing. You folks love to get the noon birth announcements emailed to you. Often when we are able to email those out, within minutes I get texts from a number of you just rejoicing that the Lord has saved another soul. And I really believe the Lord's saving people here because he knows there's a unified maturing nursery here from the top down. I can assure you as I stand behind this pulpit this morning that there is nothing between my soul and my Savior and there is nothing between my soul and these pastors that you laughed with us about this morning. There's nothing in my soul between me and any elder here or any deacon here or their wives or their kids or any member here that I know of right now as I stand here. I would never stand up and preach to you on any occasion, if I knew that there was something between my soul and your soul. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't get up and present your gift to the altar if you know a brother or sister has aught against you. I just will not do that. We refuse to do that. Why? Not just because unity's cool and it feels good. There's something God desires. God knew that there would be no gospel advancement from any group of disunified saints. None. Take your Bibles and go to John 17 real quickly this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed evangelistically in John 17, right before Judas betrayed him, right before his public arrest. Verse 20, John 17, we're halfway through his high priestly prayer at this point. He says, Lord, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And he's praying for you at this point and me at this point in the prayer that they all may be what? One, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the what? The world may believe that you have sent me. Gospel progress is contingent upon doctrinal unity, practical unity. The Lord Jesus is praying for this. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one in them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. It's pretty clear there, isn't it? Amen. And Paul's encouraging them. You're a body with a structure. You're unified. You're spirit-filled. You're maturing. Now agonize with me in prayer. 
That is, my friend, the discerned intention. He's discerning that unity is necessary collectively and within that collective group from the top down of maturing people. Praying together is absolutely necessary if they're going to have any gospel progress. And he says, pray for physical protection. In the first part of 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. I think it'd be appropriate here to cross-reference in the margin of your Bible, Acts 21, verses 20 to, uh, verse 20 through really um, chapter 27 and verse 23. Uh, it's it's uh, a whole history here, how Paul had had a visit to Jerusalem and uh, the obstacles that he faced there, even to the point of being threatened with death. You can mark down here 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 3, that the Apostle Paul all asks, also asks for prayer. In another situation, he says, pray for me that, that we might be, or that gospel preachers might be saved from wicked and unreasonable men. Prayer is asked for here that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Go back and read those texts on your own time. Uh, Merely religious people who don't hold to faith in Jesus Christ alone get very easily agitated when you tell them that it really is Jesus and Jesus alone for a lot of reasons. The persecution of Jesus his death on the cross, the persecution that Paul had received and others like him in the first century primarily came from religious people. In the history of the context I've given you, religious people were the murderers. For whatever reason, it's hard for them to realize that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone and not the church or not forgiveness of sins from a religious leader, or not from what the Bible never talks about, which is infant baptism. It's very difficult for any religious leader, for the Jews at this particular time, to accept the fact that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. Behold the Lamb of God which come to take away the sin of the world. Religious people don't like to be told from the Word of God that they're actually living a lie. They don't like it. I understand that. We still love them. But Paul's asking here for protection. So while we band together with intention to strive together in prayer, we ought to pray for each other and for those who advance the gospel from this place for physical protection. And those texts would certainly support that. In the last part of 31, to the end of the chapter, we see organic cooperation. He says, so that my service to Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. You see, within the church of Jerusalem, on his way there, he could, he could run into some physical danger. By the time he gets with the body in Jerusalem, those people are really still working hard at being unified. Probably a lot less than at Rome, Because in Rome, where the majority of the population of the church was Gentile, and there was a small remnant of Jews, when you're going back to Jerusalem, it's opposite of that. 
you've got the majority being weak and a small remnant being strong. So he's got to have prayer for physical protection from the religious people who are trying to persecute him. And by the time he gets to the body in Jerusalem, he needs further prayer that he would be, and the word here is very, the word acceptable here is just really received with open arms. Welcomed because even in the genuine remnant, there would be those who would doubt his motive for bringing this gift that we discussed last week to help them feed their poor. Would this gift, because it came primarily from Gentile churches, be received as unclean money? Would it be considered a bribe? Even the remnant that was primarily weaker would doubt his motive for being there. So we need prayer for physical protection, and we need prayer for spiritual motive to be understood, spiritual motivation to be understood. He doesn't want to get there and just shake hands and offer cold hugs or get cold hugs. He wants to be well-received. Why? Because he's not coming just to drop off a gift. He wants to encourage them and be encouraged by them because he's going to Rome to receive the same so that he can go from Rome to the rest of the world to give the gospel. So it's worth agonizing in prayer together, the structure within the infrastructure from the top down to remain unified, keep maturing, praying for physical protection, proper spiritual motivation to be received. Why? Because they still need Jerusalem, even though she's weak at this time, to interdependently function with them under the spread of the gospel. There's not only no soul left behind in Paul's philosophy of ministry, there's no like-minded church left behind when it comes to interdependent work together for the spread of the gospel. He's taking a gift from multiple churches to the church where it all began. And from that church where it all began to a church in the West, as far as it's gone so far, to springboard from them into Spain. It's fascinating when you look at the geography of this on a map. Paul's heart is to get to the uttermost western part of the Roman Empire, the known world at that time, to make sure every soul gets the gospel there. But he can't do it without individuals who are right with God in local churches and local churches working together that are like-minded, functioning unto that goal. There is definitely an organic cooperation that's happening here. He says here, so that I can not only be well received, but I can come to you in joy. Paul teaches a tremendous lesson here in this phrase, that every gospel opportunity is going to be an effort that includes smooth skating. But it's nice once in a while to joyfully, without much conflict, enjoy necessary fellowship among healthy Christian people for a little reprieve from doing heavy gospel lifting. We have been sold somewhat of a lie for a long time. For those of you that have been Christians longer than others, we've been sold a lie that God does his best gospel advancement during a time of persecution. And that's not true. Or could I say that's never been his original intention. Persecution came to the church of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8 because the church of Jerusalem wasn't ready to follow through with what God gave him in Acts 1.8. They were content just to hunker down in Jerusalem. 
And he says, no, I'm going to send persecution to spread you out so the gospel goes to Judea and Samaria and that are most parts of the earth. Acts 9.31 is really where the Lord wants the church to dwell. During a time of peace and interdependent gospel work together, read the text, uh, Acts 9.31. There was great joy, a work of the Holy Spirit, and gospel advancement, and many were added continually to the church. It's in this time of peace, my friends, that God's given us in our culture that we should be agonizing together in this unified, interdependent way for gospel advancement more than any other time of persecution. When persecution comes, it's typically because the church isn't doing its job. I didn't say holistically, I said typically. What a great opportunity you folks have taken advantage of, this peace, and doing great gospel work together. And it's worth praying for, this organic opportunity that we continue to have. And he says here, it always should be done by the will of God, according to the word of God, within the parameters, geographic even parameters, ecclesiastical parameters, working together as churches unto the gospel and its progress. So, discerned intention, necessary protection, organic cooperation. This is why we pray. And this is why we agonize together to pray. So whether it be individual prayer, whether it be prayer breakfast, whether it be prayer together as women and men before services, after services, prayer during services, when we pray and let us increase more and more, may it always be when it comes to the gospel for these reasons. Lord, keep us together. Keep us unified from the top down so that we can be physically protected, so that we can organically cooperate together. Because, Lord, this is why we're here anyway. We're here as gospel agents, ambassadors, if you will, to the world for the gospel's sake. And we can have no success without prayer. Without prayer. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the simple beauty of this passage. Whether we have individually or collectively reached out in our area, church plants, foreign missions, as we continue to do that, we pray together that you would allow us to maintenance the unity that the Spirit of God's given us here because it's good. We have a church that's together, it's strong, it's growing in its love for you, its word, each other, and souls in our community. Lord, help us to long to maintain that togetherness. Lord, you've granted us physical protection. Would you continue to do that? And as we continue to reach out in Jerusalem, plant more churches and go to more places throughout your world to spread the gospel. Protect us from religious, unreasonable men. Protect us, Lord, from physical violence. And in a time of peace, help us to know the most gospel progress. And Lord, as we go along, we agonize together as we close this morning, begging you that you would allow us to not only interdependently work together as a family, 
but also, Lord, with other like-minded churches that you would unify them from the top down. Allow them to link with us so that we can get together, reach our state, our region, our country, and our world for Jesus Christ. So many are lost and dying, Lord, hopeless in this world, hanging on meaningless religious traditions and laws, all the while missing out on what it means to have true joy in Jesus Christ alone. So we beg you, Lord, we beg you to help us know the progress of the gospel that you would have for us individually in a local church together with others in our lifetime. And we know, Lord, that's only going to happen as we pray. Burden our hearts to pray more and more so that we might see your fame and the fame of your son increase more and more. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.